2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read verse 9, then we will pray. And I want to read just a couple more verses after that to uh, kind of set the, uh, make a, to make one point before we move on. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word, Father God. And I pray, God, that I have preached it rightly or that I will preach it rightly, Father God. That I won't neglect anything, Father God, that you have given me to say. At the same time, Father God, I won't add anything. Um, this is a time, Father God, in which you are glorified um, by your people. And that glorification has to begin with the speaker, Father God. If I'm not bringing honor and glory to you, God, if I'm not submitting and surrendering everything to you, Father God, then I cannot expect... These people do the same. What I can expect them to do is to follow my lead, Father God. To be um, as far afield in their application of the word to their lives as uh, God as, uh, as I am. I can't expect them to be any different. So, Father God, I pray, God, that my, uh, my mind and my heart are honed sharply to your word, Father God. That I'm ready to deliver it. And deliver it in its entirety, Father God, but in its exclusivity. That I would not... Uh, fail to say anything, Father God, and I would not add anything. I love you, Father God. We thank you for the gift of Christ, Father God. I pray, God, for the heartache that's in our community right now, Father God, and uh, in the county as a whole, Father. I pray for the family involved, but I also pray, Father God, uh, a, pray of thanks, a prayer of thanksgiving, Father God, for the generosity that we saw yesterday among so many, Father. You are such a wonderful God, Father, and I pray, Lord, that you will establish yourself, God, as only you can. Um, as the ruling king over this entire community, Father. Over the place that we call home. Draw us closer to you, Father God. Drive away, Lord, the evil that surrounds us. We love you, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, uh, just to kind of complete what we talked about last week, um, I want to I add this. In, back in verse 8, verse 8 that we read, we read last week, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And we talked about that. We talked about what it really doesn't apply to. Then we read this week. He says, the, but the, uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Then the next verse begins, but the day of the Lord. So now we understand the context, don't we? The context of... Of verse 8, the context of verse 9, leading into the truth of verse 10, is that, that this entire chapter of Second of Peter speaks of one issue, and that is the day of the Lord, the coming day of Christ. Christ has come once already in the first advent, and in that He offers Himself as sacrifice for the sins of the world. He comes so that He can atone, not just, e not just uh, sufficiently, but efficiently, for those who are called to be His. It's come for that great, wonderful reason. But now, now, Christ, we await the second advent, the return of Christ, in which Christ is coming back to be united with those that are His, to offer that final salvation from both sin and death to those who are eternally His, will be reunited with Him forever will rise to meet Him in the air. Uh, the graves thrown open. The sea giving up its dead. All of those things abundantly true. But He also comes 
bringing with Him recompense. He's going to pay back the world. He's going to pay back those who have rejected Him. He offers recompense. Now that is the truth of this passage. That is both the joy and the fear of it. It's a fearful passage. Because there are going to be some around us who have rejected Christ over and over and over again. And at that moment, the clock has just ticked down to zero. It's over. Every opportunity for salvation is now over. Christ has returned. The time of mercy is done for. All that's left is the time of justice. So one of those things we would do when we preach this uh, passage is to beg people, plead with people, to avail themselves of the opportunity they have right now to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. It's not me rushing you. It's not me offering to you some hurried view of, of the future of the world. I don't know when this day comes. The one thing I absolutely know is this. It is nearer now than it was last Sunday. It's this. And when you don't know when something's going to happen, you had better not commit the sin of ignoring time. Time is of the essence. So, as, as we study, let's, let's, let's speak of that just a little bit more. The psalmist, um, in Psalm 77, 8, asks ask these questions. He says, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? It's reasonable to ask these questions in a world like ours, dominated by chaos, by disaster. By pandemic and by death. Just yesterday, Haiti hit by a, an earthquake more powerful than the 2010 earthquake. Already hundreds dead. But it's Haiti. There'll be thousands. It's inevitable. Russell can tell you. They live in poorly constructed concrete homes. Right? One shake and what happens? They just collapse. Everything comes tumbling down upon them. They don't know how many are dead because they have not had time to dig through the rubble. And there's no machinery there with which to do it. That's the world we live in. What's happening right now in a at one time war zone for the United States? Afghanistan is falling. As we speak, Kabul surrounded and infiltrated. The president of Afghanistan has fled. I'm not preaching uh, current events. It doesn't matter. It's what the world's always looked like, right? My whole lifetime is what the world's looked like. The names have changed. The countries have changed. The situation is exactly the same. And every time we, as, as the United States of America, try to put order to the chaos, it's like trying to sweep the sand off the beach. When we leave, it looks exactly as it did when we got there. The same. Because we can't fix these problems. These problems are endemic to a world dominated by sin. So it's reasonable for us to ask, has God's love just ceased? Are His promises at an end? All the promises for good, are they over? Who could have guessed that we would be living in a world that looks just like the ancient world? Defined by disease, upheaval, and natural disaster. Despite all our technological advances, the world hasn't changed at all. Not at all. 
What's clear is that while technology is advanced according to the prescribed will of God, how do we know that? I'll tell you how we know that. We know that because, because we, we clearly understand from Scriptures that it's appointed for every man who wants to die in the judgment. You have an appointed death. Your death isn't accidental. Your death isn't because of violence. Your death isn't just a, a fluke of nature. You die at exactly the moment in which God has prescribed for you to die. That does not make it less tragic. It does not make it less heartrending. It means that God is in absolute control of our lives. And over time we've seen from technology the lengthening of human life and the expansion of human health, especially over the last 500 years. Think about it, over the last 500 years you've studied history, how much human life has changed. We literally went from a tribal people to, a, to an industrialized people. And with that came this just explosion in our lifespan. The only faithful understanding of that is that we've done exactly what God intended for us to do. That we're living longer because God wants us to live longer. Because if He didn't, we'd be back living 45 years. We wouldn't be the way we are. Where 60-year-old, people who are 60 are still working and not even dreaming of retirement. Because we're healthy enough to do that. Lots of us in this room remember when 70-year-olds were really, really old. And I don't mean, I'm not picking on anybody for being 70. I'm saying the 70-year-olds looked like they were 90. Hey, Miss Beverly, that was my fault, wasn't it? It was my fault. I open the door and all he does is walk right through. Every time. Brother, and we are absolutely thrilled that you are that old. And we do not plan on parting with you anytime soon. Um, it wouldn't be the same without you, brother. There's no way. There's no way. Um, it's different. As I pointed out before, I've known a lot of nine-year-olds. My own grandmother was a hundred when she passed away. As a boy, I didn't know anybody that old. Not one. Not one person. There was nobody in my church growing up in their 80s. Everybody died before that. Nowadays, people live a really long time. We've seen the will of God lived out through our technological advances. However, however, all our scientific progress cannot undo the destructive power of the stain of sin upon the world. God may have given us longer lifespans. Because remember, one time we lived a really long time. And then God, by His will, shortened them to nothing, almost. When Methuselah lives to be 969 years of age, and then God's decree after that is what? That, we, that 70 is a, long, is a full life? That's a big difference, right? It's 900 years of difference. And now they're expanding again. So much so that if you really think about it within the context of any age, it's almost ridiculous how much they're expanding. But we still haven't changed anything. The impact of original sin upon God's creation is diseases, natural disasters, and unrelenting warfare. 
Paul formulates for the believer the answer to all the pain and all the suffering of the world when he writes in Romans 8, 20-21. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Pause there for just a second. I know I read this verse all the time. I was thinking that, man, I'm always bringing this verse up. Do you know why I like this verse? You know why? I'll tell you. I can't change the way the world is. I can't. I can't change. I, I go to bedsides and I, I can't tell people why things turned out the way they do. On my own. But the Bible answers this question. Why do we have disease and death and warfare and famine? Why do we have birth defects? Why do we have um, strife in the home? Why do we have criminality? We have all these things that just tear our hearts up because the creation has been subjected to futility. The answer to every question that we really want is in that one verse right there. Why? Because creation has been subjected to futility. In hope. In hope. What's the hope of futility? I look beyond myself. If God does not subject the creation to futility, if He makes all these things in a lack of wisdom, He did not go away. If the world is relatively stable and relatively perfect, why in the world would we pray? Why would we call out? Why would we ever, ever look above beyond ourselves? We'd look to our technology. We'd look to our scientific progress. We would be solving our problems. All the hope and change would come from us. Here's the reality. Every man who ever said there was hope and change lied. Because there is none. Because he can't offer it. The only hope, the only change is in Christ himself. The futility makes me look beyond humanity. The futility makes me look upward and not laterally. I go vertical. I must cry to God. That's what the futility does. There's where the hope is. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is warped by this. The whole world around us destroyed by rebellion and sin. A fire lit by Adam but stoked by us. We did this. We are doing this. Every time I go my way instead of God's way, the fire burns hotter. I can't blame Adam. I'm just as much of a rebel. I consciously do it. Consciously turn my back on God. Making it worse. Look, the world is subjected to matayotes. That's, that's Peter's word. That's Paul's word. I say that because Peter also uses it in the first chapter of the letter. I believe it's the first chapter of the letter we're, we're right now studying. Matayotes, it's translated futility often. But it's a Greek word that means, now this is from Thayer's Dictionary. Devoid of truth and appropriateness. Perverseness, depravity, frailty, or want, lack of vigor. Everything that can possibly afflict the world in which we reside does so because of our sin and the response of God to that sin. Why subject the world to futility and hope? I've used this example before, so don't throw anything at me. It's the best one I think I can come up with. All of us have been at that 
tipping point of rebellion with our parents. Do you know what I mean by that? When you were younger and you rebelled, they could do something about it. But you finally reached that age where they really couldn't fix your little red wagon anymore. Right? Where a, a, a beating did not change your attitude about stuff. It was like driving a nail in farther to pull it out, right? It wasn't going to help. And maybe your dad, but probably your mom. Moms love this word. They said to you, when you had said you were going to do what you wanted to do, and they couldn't stop you, their response was what? Fine. The most horrible word you can ever hear from your mother is fine. You know what she meant? She washes her hands of the whole thing. You now have to learn on your own. You're so smart, big guy or big girl, go learn. Understanding that your mother's not incredibly wise, she's just old. And she's messed up like that. She knows where that path leads. She's not perfect. She's just lived way longer than you. She knows what happens when you don't watch out for your money or you don't watch out for other things that are really important. When she says, fine, go learn your lesson the same way she did. When God says, fine, in Romans um, 8.20, what he means is, you now have told me you know better than me. I'm going to let you have the world you said you wanted so badly. I'm going to let you have that world of perverseness, of depravity, and see how much you like it. You had to learn the hard way. A land that could be healed by truth has so few truth tellers and believers that it continues to languish in its own lies and bear the detriment of celebrating its untruths. That's part of that futility. The futility isn't just the fact that it's so evil or so broken, so scarred by sin and disease and warfare famine. It's also the fact that it's a land that just doesn't have any voices saying do the opposite. We live in a land right now, not just ours, but, but every land throughout the world in which the voices that say indulge yourself are, are way more than the voices that say sacrifice yourself. The voices that say, turn your back on the world and turn your face to God are, are almost non-existent. And the voices that say, deify yourself, are loud as a jet engine. It's the world we live in. This is the world of futility. It's not just that it's broken. It's that the answer is so seldomly offered. That's the difference. Criminality on a global scale is rampant. As the strong victimize the weak and even the most basic needs are exploited for political gain. Diseases run rampant and bring the specter of death and unimaginable suffering to billions around the world. It's the world we live in. It's our descriptions. It's the world we've always had. The prophet Isaiah described this time in Isaiah 37.3. They said, Thus says Hezekiah, The day is the day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. There is one biblically shocking image that is so demonstrative of the time in which we dwell is the idea of a mother pregnant who has come to that point and she just does not have the will to give birth to her child. She will choose death for herself and for her child before she can bring this forth. Not because of selfishness, because of just exhaustion. 
exhaustion. She's given up. It's the world we live in, which people have just simply given up. The world around us teeters on that edge of giving up completely. Yet Peter describes our focal passage, the mercy of God and the grace of God. God's not slow in fulfilling His promise. And His promise is not to save, but to judge. The promise He speaks of right here is the fact that God will judge the world. But He's not slow. He's just full of great grace and full of mercy. He'll hold off thousands of years. He'll put up with thousands of years of, of the rankest type of behavior. Why? Because His will is that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God waits. He waits because He doesn't want to condemn. God waits for men and women to hear the gospel and embrace the truth. The Almighty God waits. I'm reminded of something that a brother in this room who I've... I've not driven nails, but I've handed him many nails over the years. Handed him many nails, I might add. If you're not very fast, he will say... It's a nickel holding up a dime. He knows who I'm talking about. In this case, the nickel is holding up the infinite value of God. The God of heaven, who has no reason to give us another moment, right? Not another second, waits. He has every right to cast us everyone into hell. Every right. It's not, it's not, it's not evil, it's not wrong. It's absolutely just and righteous if He did that. But He is so loving and so compassionate toward us in our distress, in the midst of our futility. What does He do? He waits. Even though biblically He is urged to return, He waits. He holds back the sun. He waits. Despite the fact that the Lord has promised to judge the stain of sin, to seek eternal justice, final punishment, and infinite retribution for the sins of mankind. Peter declares the patience and love of God whose grace is extended to humanity, giving opportunity for repentance and belief to a world that insults the Lord. As David writes in Psalm 10.4, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. They're the declaration of the modern world. From all going all the way back to the 1920s. There is no God. He is not there. You don't have to be concerned with Him. You can't judge because He doesn't exist. Yet the Bible prophetically knew that is what the world would say. The fool in his heart says, there is no God. There's no God. That's what it says. That's what they all say. Goodness, we got kids in our community who say there's no God. Fallen for the trap, the deluding trap of, 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 of evil minds. It's all pride. It's all wickedness. Our pride is not just manifested in the outright atheism of a rebellious culture. But here's where we come in. Gather around. The practical atheism. Of a world that lives without giving thought to the will of God. It's what some of us do. Rejecting God in any way leads to absolute madness. 
as described by Eliphaz in Job 15.16, saying that those who turn their backs on the truth of Christ are abominable and corrupt. A man who drinks injustice like water. This is the world with which the Lord is exceedingly patient. A world that drinks injustice like water is the world that God's patient with. Now look, I speak in so many ways hypocritically about this. I'll be the first to tell you. How many dark decades did I live in which I cared not what my God thought? How long must I live to make up to my God for my rebellion? To live for live a, a life with Jesus on my heart and my mind and my tongue to make up for those times when all I cared about was me. All I do is warn you away. I, there's something about the, the scriptures like this that, you know what they really do? They shoo us back. Like a mother who sees something dangerous, and what does she do? She shoes the children back. You understand the image? She knows they might get hurt, so what do we do? We warn them away. We stand between them and something, something harmful. Drawing all people who would believe the gospel to himself, Christ Jesus summons the world by way of the truth, testified of and preached. Only one thing can come between the truth of God leading to salvation and the heart of man. Now here's the tough part. Let's talk about the tough part. The Lord Jesus does not limit the power of the gospel, but he firmly establishes the nature of God's redemptive act when he teaches in Mark chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. This is what's called often the unforgivable sin. Mark writes, words of Christ, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Something went around the globe about 10 years ago called the Blasphemy Challenge. Anybody remember that? Where people literally recorded videos of themselves and posted it on social media of them blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And all they would say was, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Okay. And they were from the weird and liberal parts of the world, including the United States. But especially Europe. Which has been post-God for almost 100 years now. But this was, the, this was where they, they sought kind of their ability not to anger the living God, but to demonstrate their perceived atheism. We're not worried about this because He doesn't exist. And let's talk our way through this, because this is vital for us. First, the circumstances of this passage are essential to understanding exactly what God's talking about. It's actually what Christ is discussing for us. First, Christ was in the midst of an ongoing struggle. That passage in Mark 3, as with a similar passage, say, in Matthew chapter 12, is, is where Christ is kind of, he's going around in his public ministry, and he is, he, is, uh, he is preaching and teaching, and he's working miracles, including driving out demons, but he is constantly beset by uh, the Pharisees. By the Pharisees. And we know that, that both Christ and Paul specifically had, had very deep, you know, um, um, very deep animosity 
was toward both of them um, from the Pharisees. Now specifically, Paul was being harassed by a group of Pharisees called the scribes. They were kind of like the preaching arm of the Pharisees. All right, so they were the for the Pharisees were in many ways, in some ways, I guess, um, to compare maybe to the Catholic Church of the day, they were the canon lawyers of the time. They were laymen often, but they were experts in the experts in the teachings of the law. But they often wrote things like uh, commentaries on them. Now, what I'm I guess would be maybe the most important thing to talk about post seventy A.D. when Jerusalem fell. And Judaism was was dispersed in a diaspora around pretty much the, the known world that wouldn't end till what? 1948? Almost, almost 2,000 years of being without a homeland. It's pretty epic if you think about the world. There are no Jewish priests right now. The priestly class died away. What class remained? The teachers, the Pharisees. The rabbis of the 21st century are the Pharisees of the 1st century. They're the only part of the Jewish leadership that survived. So that term rabbi or teacher is associated with Pharisees. Gamaliel was a rabbi, was a teacher. So these scribes were the preachers. The Pharisees um, dealt with the word and the scribes went out and proclaimed it. They wrote it down and they also proclaimed it. So Christ is specifically oh, kind of in, a, in an intellectual battle with these scribes. Their attack had not been to, to not just discredit Christ, who referred to himself as the Son of Man. They're attacking him even though he's not really opposing this. I'm just the Son of Man. Now we know Son of Man connects him to Daniel chapter 7. We understand that Son of Man is a, is a, is a prophetic term. There's no doubt about that. But to discredit the work of the Holy Spirit in him. In the same instance recorded by Matthew, referring to an exorcised demon, the Lord says in Matthew 12, verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, but wait a second. If the house, divide, if the house is not divided against itself, and therefore going to fall... And Christ is the Christ is before you, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, and he is really driving out demons in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then what do you got to do? You've got to believe him. See, this is their atheism for the scribes. This is their atheism. God isn't doing that. Therefore, I don't have to believe that. This is their way of suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. All they were doing was the very same things we do in the 21st century. Because I can't take what God's saying, therefore I don't have to believe in Him. Because I don't like what the Bible says to me about my personal life, therefore I can reject everything that it says. Now that's what they were doing. Christ implicitly states that His power comes from the Holy Spirit. If He is maligned, then the Spirit's still free to do His work to bring rebellious hearts back to the Creator of God. If they insulted Christ and insulted Him and insulted Him, as, as Paul attacked the people of God, as Paul, Paul attacked the body of Christ, the fledgling body of Christ, there was still the Holy Spirit on the Damascus Road to do what? To strike Paul blind. There was still the power of God demonstrated among the people of God. 
But this is what Christ explains to us. If the spirit is, un, is disregarded, if he's treated as unneeded and unwanted, then who delivers men from their darkness? It's not just that I reject the Son of Man, if I reject the power of God to change my mind, then who delivers me? If I refuse to listen, as Christ says in Matthew 12, 32, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Christ is very clear. You can speak against the Son of Man, and He'll forgive that. You can reject Christ over and over and over again, and Christ will forgive that. But when the Holy Spirit has no effect upon your heart, then where do you turn? The Holy Spirit is the power of the gospel to save men. To deny Him is to deny the gospel itself. Therefore, the unforgivable sin is to harden your heart so much that you will deny the power of God to save. Essentially, the unforgivable sin is the sin of unbelief. The one thing God refuses to forgive is when in our final form, in our final moments, we still refuse to believe in God. Refuse to submit our hearts to the salvation of God embodied in Christ Jesus. It's about this that Christ warns the scribes who are dangerously close to being forever hardened. He doesn't say they're cast out forever. He is warning these men. You are so dangerously close to having hearts so hard that you'll never believe the gospel. It's a dangerous place. I said, there's something about God's actions through the gospel that are like a mother shooing us back from danger. That there are paths intellectually and morally and emotionally that we can plant our feet on that will lead us to just destruction. That will lead us to having such a hardened heart that we'll never hear the Word of God. And so those scribes were warned today to flee that pride that ensnares human hearts. Well, the eternal sin mentioned by Christ often causes a great deal of strife and unneeded suffering in the lives of those who are tended to experience unwarranted doubts and fears. Just to say it this way, folks, in church, there's a lot of sensitive folks. There's just no doubt about it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a very, very, very good way. If you preach too hard, they think you're talking about who? Them every time. There's some people for whom the sermon flies right over their heads and ought to land in their hair. And there's other people that it just hits that soft heart every time. Every time. And they're broken every single time they hear it. They're just some sensitive folks. As a pastor's counsel, many believers, to be honest with you, through irrational fears. I've often wondered why some humble and sensitive believers experience so many troubles, while others, who rightly should be afraid because of their lives, because their lives are defined by selfishness and greed and corruption and wicked ways, never seem to have a moment's concern for their eternal soul. Folks, I've met folks in, in, in church. Folks, I've met folks in, in the churches I've been in, in church leadership, that I walk away thinking to myself, there's no way that person's saved. No way. No way in a million years. And you know what the truth? That everybody thought the same thing. You know who didn't think that way? Them. Never even occurred to them. They thought they were just fine the way they were, acting any way they wanted to act, thinking anything they wanted to think. 
Paul's response, not to the sensitive who lack confidence, but to that overconfident Corinthian church. Remember, it's not just what Paul says, but who he says it to that tells so much of the story. In the midst of Corinth, that was rich and international, and right there, you know, at the crossroads of, of cultures, corrupted by both Greeks and Romans. If you could do it wrong, Corinth had it, right? Right there in the midst of Corinth, where Paul is writing and looking down upon them. What does he say to those Corinthians? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? For those whom the warning signs are everywhere, their lives are an interconnected patchwork of religious fakery, of scoffing and mockery and self-indulgence that brings honor and glory only to themselves. Now for those people... Dealing with this verse, either they are terrified of looking at themselves for fear that they will indeed fail the test of faith. Now those people right now, I am reaching out to. Whether it's in any shape or form in which they hear this message, I am reaching out to. Don't intentionally apply to your heart a hardness that does not have to be there. Widen your heart to hear the Word of God and repent of your sins today. It is the mercy of God that brings us to that point. Because I'll tell you what, there's another, another, another group, not those that are afraid to look, afraid to peer into that mirror of the glory of God and the debauchery of man. Afraid to look and see just how bad it is. Afraid to go to the doctor to find out just how sick they are. There's another group. They're so deluded and corrupted by sin that they cannot ever see the cancer transgression that grows on their very soul. They'll never see it. They'll never see it, no matter how long they live. They'll never admit because they can't see it. They're just blind. They're just blind. And for them, my heart breaks. But all the talking in the world won't draw them back from a fire of their own choosing. It just won't. Blinded by their own sin, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, these men and women may never see the truth because they are personally incapable of seeing anything but the lies of sin and death. They are so self-deceived, they'll never see the truth. Unfortunately, many reside in this fashion in the church itself, hip deep in the truth, but are unwilling and unable to ever embrace the saving love of Christ. Look, only the love of God expressed in the gospel can save such wretched creatures as these two. Only the love of God. So what are we to do now? As believers, we are all far from perfect. There's no doubt about that. Sin is our constant companion and we have hope in the face of sin through obedience, worship, study and prayer but we've got no rest from its terror except in the final resolution of death we as believers crave that moment because at that moment sin for us has ceased I crave that day so much I call come Lord Jesus come I pray even for the, for the day in which I know I want to be a time in which I will be reunited with my Father 
And not the one, the earthly one that I lost, but the heavenly one that I long for so badly. Because that's the day in which my sin is gone. Your sin is gone. At that point for the believing soul, death is swallowed up in victory. Our whole lives, we've been the victims of sin and death, and our whole lives we've been afraid of sin and death. And at that moment, Christ is victorious. However, Paul reminds us in, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 54-56, by asking the question of death, where's your victory? Or death, where's your sting? Paul provides the answer to this question in the next verse when he states that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. For the soul made sensitive to the truth by Christ Jesus, not the hardened soul of the eternally rebellious, the answer is abundantly clear when Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You want victory over sin today? You want victory over death today? You want the assurance of your salvation? You want to drive away doubt and fear? You want to open your heart wide to everything God has to offer? You want to see a different kind of obedience than you've you've ever experienced in your life? You want freedom from everything that terrifies you? It is found only in the finished work of Christ Jesus. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, the hope of victory in death is only in Jesus. You must realize that you need it. That you will die without it. And that your way is the way of eternal death. In humility, repent of your sin. Don't come in the brokenness of the guilty. But come in the godly sorrow of repentance. Repent of your sin, of the futility of your mind and your way. And call on the name of the Lord Jesus today and you will be saved. That is an absolute promise of God. It is not my promise It is His. It is prophetic and it is true. And you will be saved today if you repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Let's stand together.